Hello and welcome to episode 397 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. There we go. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. I'm Tristan Carcino. And we are coming to you from Seattle, Washington, home of the college football playoff championship game bound Washington Huskies. It is the episode 397. It is the, we're going to the natty edition (laughs) of the Pelton Cast. It doesn't matter what number it is. This is unprecedented territory. Luca was asking on what I days of the week or lost now on Tuesday night after the day after the game. And he was like, what would we do if the Huskies win the championship? And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) There's no playbook for this. Yeah. This isn't like, this is the kind of thing that's reserved for other teams. We don't get to be here. We don't get to participate in this. This is like Georgia and Alabama and Clemson. They go to these games. We get excited about beating Oregon state. Even Michigan, while they have been in the college football playoff three years in a row, has never played in the college football playoff final. And uh, I, I forget who it was who, who posted this on Twitter. The fact that college football, a sport that is has in recent the recent past and through much of its history been ruled by the Deep South, now it's the two of the power schools closest to Canada. Oh no, that are squaring up farther north than Canada for some of those. <laughs> Very probably much both, like. right? <laughs> Uh, Ann Arbor has to be northern than Toronto. I, I don't know about relative to Toronto. I mean, obviously, we know that Detroit is across the river from Canada. So. It's basically Canada. Yes. It's like Canada West. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that checks out, but uh, if somehow we could have gotten Syracuse into the college football playoff, it would really have a very Canadian feel. Well, we got a lot to get to this week, I suppose. We should get into it. Uh, although, if you have not listened to our emergency pod recapping the Huskies' thrilling 37-31 escape against the Texas Longhorns, you should, of course, do that. It was very hyped, especially after we attempted to sign off for the first time. <laughs> Katie said that I got her with the Steve Sarkeesian retire bitch kit. <laughs> that didn't see it coming? She didn't see it coming. She was just like, oh, I guess we're talking about Steve Sarkeesian. That <laughs> <laughs> was a very earnest ode to Steve Sarkeesian. I like that you the whole time were just waiting for it. I kept going. <laughs> well, I was also laughing as I noted on the pod about the fact that you'd previously delivered that soliloquy <laughs> the same twice. Thing. I delivered the same <laughs> soliloquy, but normal. Yes. <laughs> but without the... the... Look, the best satire is indistinguishable <laughs> from reality, right? I just hope we get one more, and it's not about Kaylin DeBoer. <laughs> oh, if we if we get that particular, uh, particular tribute, then... It would be an all-timer because you you hadn't invented this bit yet by the previous time. (laughs) Maybe even the previous... Played Jim Harbaugh in an important game. Two times that that Jim Harbaugh was was forced into retirement of his sorts. Uh, I will say, to your point about celebrating the national championship, it is an odd thing because the Super Bowl was just played in the afternoon Pacific time on a Sunday that is basically a holiday in America. College football's national championship is just played on a random Monday night. It's not exactly like an ideal time to like 
throw post-game parties in the unlikely event that, that the Huskies were to win. It's also just like 4.30 p.m. What is kickoff time? 4.30 is, I, don't, I don't know. It's probably about 5, right? Seems like. But it's kind of extraordinarily early for us to be paying attention to a game of that magnitude. Well, again, this whole thing is designed around... <laughs> they never expected Alabama this. Versus Clemson. <laughs> Who knew it was possible for a West Coast team to play? <laughs> the, the script was broken. <laughs> they, were, they were just like, what time is it in the Deep South when this game kicks off? That's the appropriate time. <laughs> All right, let's get to this week's toast quickly, starting with the congratulations to three Seahawks Pro Bowlers, all of them on defense? (laughs) Question mark. Uh, Linebacker Bobby Wagner, safety Julian Love, and cornerback Devin Witherspoon. Witherspoon, the 10th rookie Pro Bowler in Seahawks history, second in as many years after Reek Woolen made it last season. For Bobby Wagner to keep the streak going, pretty incredible at this stage of his career and after returning from the Rams. And then Julian Love, also a first-time pick, uh, you know, finishing the season quite strong, uh, including that Defensive Player of the Week performance against the Eagles with his pair of interceptions. I will say I'm as big of a Devin Witherspoon fan as anybody, probably the most. Love Devin Witherspoon more than anything seeing him play. I was shocked to see he just didn't play in that many games. I mean, I don't, you know, most of the voting took place before he missed the last couple of weeks due to injury. So I'm sure that was a big factor in it. But also, I scoured the NFC Pro Bowl rosters. I looked up and down the defensive rosters. And I I looked everywhere, right? (laughs) Every single place that you could look. And at no point, shockingly, shockingly, did I see Jalen Carter's name. In the Pro Bowl. Yet somehow, somehow, he is still betting favorite for NFC defense or defensive rookie of the year. Not even NFC, right? I believe Devin Witherspoon is now fourth in the odds. That is absurd. So, I don't think it's just Jalen Carter at this point. It's just Jalen Carter that bothers me. Anybody else who's above him, I'm fine with. I think Jalen Carter has been better this season than Will Anderson Jr. Okay. You, you're entitled to your opinion. Look, you can't like take a victory lap about the Eagles at this point. I'm, I'm not taking a victory lap about the Eagles. I still think the consensus is that Jalen Carter individually has played that quite well. And just as the Seahawks can somehow have three pro bowlers on a defense that has dropped to, what, 26th in DVOA? Uh, individual tally, defense is more of a weak link game than it is a strong link game. And also those two teams may share some coordinator issues. Or not coordinator issues, wow. because I don't think it's Clint Hurt's fault. Sean Desai roasted. I also don't think it's Sean Desai's fault. I do think it's Matt Patricia's fault. <laughs> I 100% think that. It was just like the moment that I saw the news about Matt Patricia being taking over play calling duties. I was like, oh, problem solved. And we should have had an emergency pod just to discuss that. <laughs> the Matt Patricia thing. <laughs> well, before the Seahawks such an incredible thing to have happened and then for them to have gone on this losing streak immediately after sean desai is the one who actually looks great in the situation getting out just in time although he's still part of the organization uh next up congrats to this this year's pelton cast fantasy football champions <sighs> james darnbrook in the home of the super bowl 48 champions league congrats to james darnbrook fantasy genius jimmer Jimson in the four-time WNBA Champs League. He's headed back to the Pelton Cast Champions League next year. And in the Pelton Cast Champions League, I was the winner. <laughs> oh, God. What's this? I, I have been the Buffalo Bills of fantasy football so many finals. 
Was this like the so Huskies being in the national championship game for you? Like I had no idea how to react. <laughs> how do you, how do you react to winning a fantasy football championship? I didn't really. I I was still in shock, and uh, also I didn't really find out for sure until after the Steelers had marched down the field and scored. So uh, I was kind of annoyed by that at that point. But yeah. Well, congrats to all of the fantasy championship winner, James Darnbrook, who, <laughs> who we acknowledge here. <laughs> uh, lastly, this week we're remembering Cindy Reinhardt, the Como broadcaster known as the Queen of Soaps, for her updates on Northwest Afternoon. Uh, Reinhardt died Tuesday at age 75, and like it harkens back to an era where, much like Almost Live, there was a lot more locally produced programming, and I have vivid memories of being in the live studio audience at Northwest Afternoon back in the day with Jan. Do you think there was actually that much more locally produced? Because there's still a lot of... We were on one of the locally produced broadcasts. Evening is is hanging in there for a long period of time. I mean, uh, King 5, I believe, does have like a, a, a midday show that they do. I guess, I mean, there's still a lot of news programming, but this kind of content doesn't really exist anymore. It's all like syndicated talk shows in the afternoon. So Northwest Afternoon was... A big deal in Seattle once upon a time, and, and Cindy Reinhardt was an important part of it. So wish her family well. All right, let's jump right up into the roundup. Suddenly, the Seattle Kraken can't be beat. Wow. Wednesday in Calgary, it was goaltender Chris Drieger beginning the surprise start, his first one in the NHL since May 1st, 2022, a stretch of 605 days, and beating the Flames 2-1 to with 37 saves, including a clutch one when Calgary was briefly on a 5-on-3 power play and looked almost certain to score. Kraken beat the Philadelphia Flyers by the same final in overtime on Friday, getting the winner from Justin Schultz. And then, on New Year's Day at T-Mobile Park, in the Winter Classic, they shut out the defending champion Vegas Golden Knights 3-0, second career shutout in net for Joey Decord, who had 35 saves in that one. Kraken have now won five in a row, taking points in their last nine. Did you catch any of the Winter Classic? I caught some of it. I think I flipped over to college football at some point. But like right before, in between the second and third periods. Uh, they looked great. Honestly, this broadcast in general, I thought it was pretty solid. Just like outdoor sports sometimes look better on TV. The only thing, just the amount of empty space that they had. It is too big of a playing field. Here's an idea. Hockey outside in buildings specifically designed for hockey so that there's not all the empty space. I get it with the stands. Maybe you just do like a, a stadium that big, but fit a hockey rink in the middle. So you're proposing to build 50,000 seat outdoor hockey arenas? In Canada. <laughs> okay. I'll pass that one along. I mean, uh, the they were lucky that the, I think the, the roof was open, right? It was beautiful. Yeah, because of the fact that it was a sunny day. If it had been raining, they would have been forced to cover the, the rink, uh, much like they do for baseball games at T-Mobile. But everything worked out. It was an incredible New Year's Day in Seattle. And it seems like the crack... It was actually a pretty solid New Year's Day in Seattle. I'm not going to lie. I mean, yes, it finished in a terrific <laughs> fashion. But weather-wise, it was a terrific New Year's Day. And it felt like the Kraken, like, they really... And the NHL like really did a good job of capitalizing on this. The uh, the uh, tossing of the fish and the players all coming in dressed that way, I thought worked out well. Uh, they, they came in dressed as the fish. They came in dressed as the fish mongers. The mongers. Yeah, we coveralls, you know, like the red coveralls and white t-shirts. Oh, I love when rich people pretend to be poor. 
<laughs> I don't think that's exactly what was happening there, but okay. Uh, Sorry. And the we talked on last week's podcast about what the the outside of the rink that the rest of the playing field would look like. It made more sense visually once you saw it in person rather than the rendering that I looked at. Did it? That it was supposed to be a water theme and that there were docks leading out to the rink from the dugouts. It's like me when I wear my Carhartt beanie. (laughs) (laughs) And go to my job at the music factory. Uh, well, we're in the content minds right now. Uh, the Kraken complete their homestand Thursday against Ottawa before heading out east starting next Tuesday. So where do the Buffalo. Kraken rank in the Western Conference as far as the playoffs go? Because it's quite a winning streak that they've been on. Yeah, they had a lot of ground to make up. The one thing is they've played many more games than most of the teams in the Western Conference. Uh, they've had a, a very heavily front-loaded schedule. So where they actually sit in the conference, they don't have a good points taken per game like they do in soccer uh which would be handy because you know they're two points out of st louis but they've played two more games and two points out of calgary one more game and so on and so forth so it's not quite as good as it looks but they are now up to tied for ninth in the okay Western they're in striking distance for the playoffs no they are realistic playoff chances i gotta say my bold prediction of dave haxtell getting replaced as coach is, is not off to a strong I start i love that my bold predictions are already coming true and that your bold prediction I don't think that technically any of your one of your bold predictions came true. It's well on its way. It it is like one third of the way there, maybe. Better than nothing. I I agree with that. Even even winning this match though, or this game for the Kraken, like on the big stage, it it was sort of that could have been an inflection point for Dave Haxtall. losing the Winter Classic in probably the one of the most watched Kraken games of the year. I would assume. Oh, without question, would have been a more brutal situation for him. So even if they end up missing the I mean, I the think playoffs, the expectation still was for them to lose because they're playing against Vegas. But yeah, I mean, this but is that, a great I, That's win. what I'm saying. If the expectation is to lose and they lost, it's like, okay, that's that's still bad. But it was still a home game in this, bi- in this big situation. But if they win that, that's a huge thing in favor of Dave Haxtell. So for sure. I think even if they miss the playoffs, he's probably not getting fired. And also considering that he's taking over, I understand it's hockey and stuff happens quickly, but like taking over an expansion franchise and ushering them in through this first era, it takes a little bit extra. Yeah. He won a freaking playoff series last year. Like this isn't like British soccer or something where people are getting canned, sacked all the time. Yeah, I mean, in, in hindsight, as I think about it, it is a bold prediction. Probably if they were going to fire him the when they were at the end of the losing longest losing streak that matched what they had as a an expansion franchise, that probably was the time it was going to happen, and he survived that, and now the team is regressing to the meet. There we go. All right, UW women's basketball ready to start conference play after more than two weeks off. They're headed to the Bay Area this weekend. On Friday, they take on Cal, which uh, is coming off its most wins in a season since 2018-19. Also hopeful of returning to the NCAA tournament after going 10-2 in non-conference play. With a road win at Auburn, one of those two losses came in overtime to Gonzaga. Uh, The the Bears did get hammered 78-51 at home by Stanford in their Pac-12 opener last Friday. And that obviously across the bays where the Huskies are headed on Sunday to Maples Pavilion. 
Cardinal ranked number eight despite losing Haley Jones to the WNBA draft. Uh, Jake one favorite Cameron Brink has been perhaps the nation's best player this season, averaging 18.7 points, 10.8 rebounds, 3.2 blocks, and just 21.8 minutes per game. Uh, Stanford has beat a pair of top 15 teams in Indiana and Florida State, the latter on a neutral site, and their lone loss came at Gonzaga when Brink was limited to 12 minutes by illness. So a split this weekend would be a good start to Pac-12 play for the Huskies. Obviously going to be very difficult to uh, get a win at Stanford. UW men's basketball faced perhaps its toughest road trip of Pac-12 play. Uh, against the Mountain Schools last weekend, and they played well, but could not pull off an upset in either game. They led Colorado 63-56 to with under 16 minutes remaining after a 15-2 run, but then saw the Buffaloes answer with an identical 15-2 run in a four-point loss. They were up 11 at halftime at Utah, and still by 10 with 14 minutes left before the offense went quiet in a game they ended up losing by five. These were just both very frustrating games that I only saw small snippets of. It was like, I, I honestly, I think I forgot about the Colorado game. Many people did until I posted about it on the Discord. It, it was just the timing of it was kind of off. So I was watching uh, whatever bowl game was on. Oh, that was the uh, Arizona bowl game, right? Uh, Arizona, Oklahoma was on. And so like I'm watching that. And then all of a sudden I turn into the Husky game. And they're up by like six. And I'm like, damn, this is going to be a huge win. And immediately when I thought that, oh. that is that second is when Colorado went on that run. And then the game on Sunday, there were just a few moments where it's like they they still just needed one extra playmaker or like at the end of that game, it was a lot of severe Wheeler. And I was like, maybe let's have a little bit less of severe Wheeler. Yeah. I mean, I still am optimistic Corin Johnson can be that guy if he, he's given the opportunity and he isn't always. Or just even figuring out how to play off Keon Brooks a little bit more like there, there are a Keon, lot of that's like Keon Johnson, Corin Johnson. No, you said Corin Johnson. Oh, okay. Uh, but th- there were some moments where it was like, we just needed somebody else to create in those situations. It's not that Severe Wheeler is bad. It's not quite, it's Severe Wheeler time, Severe Wheeler. But like, it was close to that. Or it's like, it felt like they needed a bucket and he was the only one being like, yeah, I've got this, guys. And there were some other players between Moses Wood, Mulcahy, Keon Brooks. Like, I just wanted to see them run proper offense a little bit more. And they had some brutal possessions. I think there was a shot that Moses Wood took also where I was just like, why are you shooting this with 20 on the shot clock? And it's like, when you get to those situations late in the in the game, you have to take good shots. And it felt like they just weren't able to do that. And that's what they have been doing so far this year, being a more experienced team. So I was a little surprised by that. Right. I mean, that that is where they executed much better, even though in the loss to San Diego State, down the stretch against Xavier, uh, certainly against Gonzaga, where it was the Zags that fell apart down the stretch of that game, which unfortunately, uh, it, it turns out that Gonzaga just might not be all that great. You know what? I'm okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> I will take that. UW beat them, which is awesome, but they don't need to beat a good Gonzaga team. Gonzaga being bad and UW beating them is actually a two-for-one. That's a great situation. I mean, the other person they could have used last weekend, obviously, was Frank Kepnong, who did not play in either game due to his I think, knee injury. I think this was massive, not having Kepnong in these games. Yeah, I mean, these, you know, Colorado did not have the full complement up front because they also were missing Tristan, Tristan De Silva in this one, which... Uh... <laughs> his name is just hilarious. <laughs> That's how it's pronounced. 
Uh, Utah, though, took full advantage against the Husky front line. Braxton Mia played just 10 minutes in that one before fouling out. Our guy Wilhelm Breidenbach. Was it Brighton Brot's Brighton Bright Bright Spot? Brighton Spot. Thrillhelm <laughs> Brighton Brighton Spot. There we go. Had a career high fifteen points and six boards off the bench, but uh Utah's seven footer Brandon Carlson dominated with thirty two points on fourteen of twenty three shooting. They obviously did Frank Kepnon in that situation. Yeah, they had no answer for Carlson whatsoever in the second half. Keon Brooks was Jr. was guarding him for long stretches of time. He'd be off like five inches. That's what this UW team is. There, there's not one player that really, really stands out. It's a lot of experienced players, but it might be a situation where they kind of need everybody to beat good teams on the road. Like, these aren't bad losses. No. But one of them would have been a good win, and blowing both of them... It does severely hurt their chances of making the NCAA tournament, in my opinion. It gives you less margin for error. Now, the good news is they moved up seven spots in Ken Palm. They are still projected to That's finish 11 and 9. That's good news for the nerds or whatever, but like, I, I don't think that the, the committee is not looking that hard at but, Ken Palm. But, it, but the point is, like, given what our, exp- our understanding of what this team was going to be going in, the they fact that they played games, better they have makes it games. more likely that they will win games against the weaker rest of the Pac-12. But they still had so many opportunities for a signature win. And Gonzaga, yes, it is. But, like, it's not. you can't just have the one. I agree. And they had to pull off one of these games. Colorado, there were a lot of opportunities. I mean, there's still more opportunities on the schedule. But I think these are the ones that if they miss the tournament on the bubble are going to cost them the NCAA tournament. Because it was Colorado State. It was San Diego State. It was Utah. It was Colorado. Those are like the four games that winning any one of those would have been a huge deal. They're not looking good for the Colorado State championship. (laughs) No, that's fine. Uh, never play them again. They had just five turnovers against Utah. This is kind of amazing. Uh, the other factor in these losing these two close games, the two opponents combined to shoot 44% from three in the two games. And uh, it's worth noting that playing the reverse of the Huskies' schedule at the Mountain Schools, the Cougs were competitive at Colorado but lost by 22 at Utah. So this is another How team the that's... In general? They're right there in the middle of the Pac-12 with the Huskies very much on the bubble. Do we think altitude was a factor in these games? Because it seemed like it they a... wore down both times. I mean, it is it, it, it is true. In both cases, they struggled in the down the stretch. I think that was more about their offense than it was the altitude, but... That's a part of why this is such a hard road trip, not just how good these teams happen to be this year, but that's never an easy road trip playing against those two teams. Okay, so I, I will remain positive and assume that they were without Kepnong, who's coming back. Well, who knows? You know, Kepnong could be out for the season for all we know. Okay. Like, we were going off of the fact that oh, Mike Hopkins was like, oh, yeah, it wasn't a big deal. He could have returned to that Seattle U game. And now it's like two weeks later and he still hasn't played. So we'll see. Does he use the word legit? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, the, uh, I, it's not good news, but uh, Kevin may not be needed quite as much this weekend in part because Oregon is dealing with their own front court issues uh, as they come to town on Thursday night for the first home Pac-12 game for the Huskies. So that's in Seattle. Are you going to that? No, but it's a good one. Okay. Uh, Ducks started up and down in non-conference play. They lost to Santa Clara and Syracuse on neutral sites, and they entered conference play ranked below the Huskies and Ken Palm, but they then swept the LA schools at home on the opening weekend. Uh, their their injuries are to front court starters Nate Biddle and, and Folly Dante. Uh, Biddle had wrist surgery. Dante had knee surgery. Both are expected back at some point in January, but it seems unlikely it will be tomorrow. 
in their absence, the Ducks are relying heavily on their freshman, uh, Jackson Shellstad, who was very impressive in the Nike Hoop Summit last year, starting at point guard. He's a dangerous three-point shooter. Does he he has, the mushroom yes. haircut? <laughs> uh, he's, no, he doesn't. What do you mean? Is he like a white guy with ploofy white hair? No, he's, he's not a white okay. guy. Okay. Uh, he, but he is the new Peyton Pritchard. He probably won't be there for four years, though. Uh, Kwame Evans Jr. is starting in the front court. Had 22 points, eight rebounds, five steals against USC. I'm so ready so. to hate Jackson, Jackson Shellstad. <laughs> I'll file it away for later. <laughs> you'll, you'll recall that at some point tomorrow. Yeah, he's, he's on watch. <laughs> Oregon State coming to town on Saturday. They went 8-3 and three in non-conference play, but just one of those eight wins came over a Ken Palm Top 100 team. That being number 95, Appalachian State. At home in overtime, which good for Appalachian State. Uh, they dropped out of the Ken Palm two, top 200 before conference play, but were competitive against UCLA and then inexplicably beat USC by 16 for easily their best win of the year. Uh, still ranked behind both Eastern Washington and Seattle U, the Huskies' last two non conference foes. The Beavers ranked number 330 in the country in turnover rate and shoot just 32% on low three point volume which does not seem to make them a good matchup against this Husky defense. Some of these games for Oregon, Oregon Ducks at Washington Huskies, $5 for these tickets. It's true. Okay. People are not yet bought in. Everyone, also, everyone is busy traveling to, uh, to, to Houston. Houston. Yeah. yeah. It's the opposite. of They should have scheduled a game there like they did in Las Vegas for after the Pac-12 championship. Well, obviously, the Huskies get the hammer this week. So that means it's time to attend, turn our attention to the Seahawks. We're already in it. We're in it. Wow. We're moving briskly this week. Who lost at home 30-23 to 23 to the Pittsburgh Steelers. A series of conservative fourth down decisions by Pete Carroll. And suddenly the Pete Coaster, oh. which was on such a high after the can you win the game in the first quarter locker room speech in Philadelphia. And going on the road and winning at Tennessee and coming behind and from behind in that one, suddenly the peak coaster has taken us way down, and uh, people are screaming, but not with excitement. I hate Pete Carroll. <laughs> no, <laughs> sorry, uh, that's too harsh for you. I I think Pete Carroll personally lost this game for the Seahawks. I could not fault anybody else for this loss and I think that's what was most frustrating about it because from the very beginning it was the first drive that they punted right on fourth and one at their own 34 I believe I'm trying to pull this up uh I mean granted that's a situation where most teams in the NFL would punt you know it's it's still in fourth and one at the 50 yard line oh that was at the 50 the 50-yard line. Oh, God, that's right. That's That was much worse. Yeah, no, no, that's a horrible, yeah. And and from that moment forward, Pete Carroll played this game so deeply conservative. And his defense, which is what Pete Carroll does ultimately, was shredded in this game. Maybe the vibes were good on the sideline, but it doesn't fucking matter. Like, Pete Carroll personally cost them this game. So there was that one. Immediately, they're down 7-0. Right, the Steelers come back, boom, eighty yards because Michael Dixon cannot pin people anymore. Like I think that also, I don't. Are we talking about how bad Michael Dixon has been this year? Is this statistical? Because like, I, I don't I, know. Do we have special teams DVOA anymore? I don't think. I have not seen Michael Dixon have a good punt in a very long time. 
There was close to one, I think in the Eagles game, where it looked like there was going to be a good punt, and then there was some sort of penalty or something. But like the the amount of punts that just end up being touchbacks, is a 30-yard punt. It is yeah. not worth it. That's terrible. It is not worth it to do that. And how quickly were the Steelers at midfield? It was a handful of plays at most. Uh, three plays? Yeah. No, sorry. This is very confusing because it was the pass that uh, was fumbled and then he was out of bounds as he, Mike Jackson ripped it out. Right. And then George Pickens was standing out of bounds and touched the ball. Uh, but I mean, right there, they were at the 36. And then on, like, they were at midfield immediately after that. So it was just like they got there so quickly off this 30 yard punt. Later on, wait, where was the next one? Five plays, nine yards, fourth and one at the 34. This was the second time. That's the one I was thinking of where, yeah, most teams aren't going to do that, but you've seen what type of game it is and that you cannot stop the Steelers' offense. In that situation, you probably need to go for it. This was with very little time left in the half. So the one the one way that you could argue that this is the right decision is yeah. the positives that you're going to get by going for it. You don't necessarily have the time to score a touchdown there. The extra positives that you would get. But like ultimately, he should have gone for that one. Uh, they kicked a field goal on fourth and four, which they should have gone for. That was down. That was... T- or that was to tie the game at 17. Boom, they're down a touchdown. Even even this one, fourth and four at the 42, probably should have gone for that one down a touchdown. Like, they were just chasing things the entire game because the defense isn't good enough to play a game like this. You have to understand what your team is because know what happened after all of these punts. The Steelers came down and scored. I mean, the Steelers had an all-time offensive performance in this game. It wasn't huge in terms of yards per play necessarily because of the fact that so much of their damage was done on the ground. And, you know, Mason Rudolph threw only 24 passes to 46 rushes in this game for the Steelers. But in terms of EPA, in terms of the yards per pass attempt, 11.4, the Steelers most in a game since 2018. Uh, it is funny just how like pedestrian these numbers look, but it was an absolute shredding of the Seahawks defense. Yeah. When when you it's one of those situations when you're a kid and you're like, okay, if you average four yards per carry, and on first down you get four yards, second down you get four yards, third down you get four yards, it's a first down. That's what they did in this game. The Jalen Warren 13 for 75. Najee Harris has not I've had Najee Harris in fantasy so many times. He is just legitimately not a good running back. Running backs don't matter, but Najee Harris is bad. <laughs> Well, running backs, I think to the extent that we believe that there is such a thing as running back ability, it is more likely that there are running backs who are hurting their team than running backs, many running backs who are actually helping their team. But also Mason Rudolph, this was a different game than the game that Mason Rudolph had last week against the Bengals. Mason Rudolph was just good. Look, most of it happened to George Pickens again, but it wasn't a couple of deep balls to George Pickens. It was, they were picking apart the Seahawks defense. Mason Rudolph could have been any crafty veteran quarterback who destroys the Seahawks defense, and that's what he was in this game. But the Seahawks didn't do anything good. They didn't defend the pass well. They couldn't stop the run. They did nothing well in this game. I mean, I think they overcompensated to stop the rush, which is part of why the yards per carry for Pittsburgh on the ground didn't end up that amazing, as amazing as it felt 
for much of this game. They still gained 468 yards at the Steelers. Like, yeah, my point th- is when they brought those extra guys into the box, that's when Mason Rudolph started picking them apart over the top. That it wasn't actually the crafty veteran. It wasn't the like Phil Rivers, you know, constant conversion on third and seven sort of thing. It was more what Pete Carroll wants to do on offense, which is run the ball enough to force teams to yeah, they, get out they, of their shell Seahawks, and beat them Pete over the Carrolled top. They Pete the Seahawks. And this is why the Steelers are frustrating. Like, this is what the Steelers do to teams, but they don't really no, score no, the game. This, this is why the Seahawks are frustrated. They don't gain this kind of yardage against any... This is the most yards they gained all year, right? Yeah. And it's not even close. This was in your house in a must-win game for the playoffs. Things did not break the Seahawks' way particularly well throughout the day beforehand. And I was like, it's fine. They're going to win and make the playoffs. And then Pete Carroll did whatever the fuck Pete Carroll did. He cost the Seahawks a chance to go to the playoffs. And he is holding back the Seahawks' offense at this point. They had 421 yards against Cincinnati. The, they've only had three games all year with more than 333 yards on offense. I think we maybe need to change our perspective about the Steelers with Mason Rudolph at quarterback. I think they probably should have been starting Mason Rudolph all along. This might be a different Steelers team with Mason Rudolph at quarterback, but either way, we have to stop doing the shit of like, well, okay, that team was actually good. I, I fully agree. The Again, only thing you were the like, one that was talking yourself into the defense I, of the last I two weeks. was wrong. That's what I'm telling you. There's not a good defense in there. There is a good defense in there. That's what I'll say. There is I not think there's a good, good defensive scheme, talent. Yeah. But there's also reality. The pass rush is basically non-existent at this point. They traded a second round pick for Leonard Williams, who's been good. And it's great to have Leonard Williams. But like, this isn't a competent defense overall. And it needs additional talent beyond this. Jordan Brooks's injury clearly has hurt them. We thought maybe it was Jamal Adams that was hurting them or that was helping them on the deep passes. Clearly wasn't that. It's just not a good defensive scheme and it's probably not a good defense. And that's it. Been saying it all season. Like Pete Carroll after the game was like, I wish we could have gotten more from our run game. And I'm like, what more do you want? It wasn't the offense, dude. Your defense fucking sucks. And that's what's happening here. But I do think this is relevant to the Geno Smith dialogue that's happening. Because that Geno is actually good? Because Geno is actually good. Geno is good. But the problem the Seahawks have right now is, let's say even that you think this team right now is good and it's like a little, a few tweaks away from being competitive with the 49ers, which is what they inexplicably believed coming into this season. Not coming into the season. Oh, sorry. Through the Leonard Williams track. Coming into like week 10. <laughs> Even if you wanted to keep this group together, you couldn't afford to do it because Geno Smith's cap hit is growing so much next year. And you have so many of these contracts that you're already have backloaded to decrease the cap hit this year. This was the year they were going all in. Yeah. And they're, they're not going to make the playoffs in all likelihood. So they're, it, it's weird because somehow they simultaneously have all this young talent and yet are in a terrible cap position. And or or you know, don't have like a top ten quarterback. Like that was the whole argument from the Russell anti not convinced that they don't have a top ten quarterback. Fine. They don't have a quarterback they're paying like a top five quarterback. Because that was the whole argument for so long from the Russell Wilson haters is oh, the Seahawks can't possibly win while they're devoting this much of the cap to Russell Wilson. Yeah. Well, guess what? They're not devoting shit of the cap to Russell Wilson this year. They're benefiting from him with all of these cheap rookie contracts that they have, and they still aren't good enough. And the reason is Pete Carroll and John Schneider. And 
I, I say this full well knowing that <clears throat> Pete has such incredible strengths in terms of his ability to galvanize a locker room. But I, it, it does feel like the end of an era. Pete Carroll is coming back next year. I hope you're aware of that. Don't even, it's, this is not like, this is not a thing we're even considering. Like, Pete Carroll is going to be back. Pete Carroll, golden rule. Pete Carroll is not going to be fired as Seattle Seahawks head coach. You have seen this with, Pete Carroll is ultimately the greatest coach in Seahawks history, and he is a coaching yeah. legend. Coaching legends do not get fired that easily. It, I agree. Pete, Pete Carroll is not going to be fired. But anyways, this is my point is, like, if, they, if you want to upgrade the roster, you can't also have Geno Smith's cap hit go to $30 million. And has Geno Smith played well enough that you're looking to add, like, two extra years to his contract in restructuring it this offseason? Like I, think th- I think they might. You're I, pushing that can awful de- far down the road. I like your idea of trading Geno Smith. I think it's an interesting idea. I don't think it'll happen because most teams... It's just not a thing that seems to happen that often of teams with most quarterbacks... They are like the, the Russell Wilson trade was pretty unprecedented as it was. And that was obviously initiated by him, you know, it was mutual, but he but wanted like, that trade. You're talking about an NBA style trade with Geno Smith. I don't know if it's necessarily an NBA style trade. It's the kind of trade you would make in another position that teams just generally don't make at quarterback. I really can't think of any situation where a team had a pretty good quarterback. I mean, Sam Bradford, maybe, but like even then there was a bit of desperation to it. Like, I suppose there could be a team that would maybe, I don't know, there's just a lot of quarterbacks in the draft. Teams just want to find their the quarterback. The Stafford trade, but Stafford had so much of the, like, Yeah, the Stafford head. trade is kind of, St- Stafford was considered to be, like, an elite-level quarterback, I guess. I don't, I don't know. I'm really fascinated to see how things are going to play out. I think what is most likely going to happen, and this is why it's frustrating, is... Pete Carroll will learn nothing. Pete Carroll has learned some things. Occasionally. He has evolved. Ultimately, Pete Carroll will learn nothing. The defense will not improve. Geno Smith will be the quarterback. The roster that we see in front of us is more or less going to be the roster next year. There will be a couple of small changes, but ultimately this is going to be the roster and it's going to take a massive leap forward defensively that they're not going to have. They'll have a first round pick in the fifth, in the 15 range, but a player like that is probably not going to change the course of history. And that's it. We're going to have another year of this and they're going to go nine and eight or eight and nine. Again, they'll probably be nine and eight. Cause look at the extra home game and the third place schedule next year and, and the third place schedule. Like I, that's, that's probably, and maybe they'll even squeak into the playoffs, but like this team is probably not going to win the Super Bowl. They're not really in the conversation for it. They're just going to be hanging around. It was an interesting discussion in the Discord this week about like why people are so much more down on Mariners management as a whole, not looking strictly at the ownership level, than Seahawks management. When the Mariners, like, you know, the Seahawks worthy percentage of the last over the last five years is probably about fifty-four percent. It's and different in football, but I it is, but it's, 54% it's part of the, percent in football also doesn't win you Super Bowls. It's actually worse to be 54% in football. I, I agree. And the Seahawks seem way farther from winning a Super Bowl than the Mariners are from winning the Bowl difference series. is that they, they're trying. We know they're trying. There's, but, you could not make an argument that Pete Carroll and John Schneider are not trying to win. Financially, there's no <clears throat> downside to trying. Like, there's, there's not the trade-off that there is in baseball because it's just a, a different sport. Cap. It's a lot easier to hate management in baseball because baseball is setting their own budgets. True. So... But at the same time, you, at no point 
Despite how you think about Pete Carroll and John Schneider, you could never argue that they are not trying to win the Super Bowl. I mean, the problem is that they tried too hard to win the Super Bowl. Like, the Leonard Williams trade was just a disaster. That's but the only way to put it. Like It's not a disaster. It's a bad trade. They lit a, a second-round pick on fire. A disaster is the Jamal Adams trade. Okay. That's that's fair. But they lit a second-round pick on fire because they didn't understand who they were as a team or who the Niners were as a team. I think the bigger—it wasn't Montez Sweat also traded for a second-round pick. The problem is that they just traded for the wrong player. I No, I don't think that Montez Sweat would have made that. First off, he was traded for— Made a huge difference for the Bears. I, I agree the Bears are playing awesome down the stretch. The Bears' second-round pick, is it theirs, their own, or one of the ones they traded for? I think it is their own. Like, that obviously was a much more attractive second-round pick than what... No, I agree. Presumably, even the Giants thought at that period of time was going to be, like, you know, the 55th pick. Well, we hope that the Bears <laughs> the Bears pick is slightly slightly worse. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it just, like, it was horrible watching this game. It was a horrible game to watch. And I'd hope until the end, but I knew exactly what was going to happen. That turnover that Gino had, which I don't fault Gino for at all. But, like, I could feel that turnover in my bones that it was coming. And it was just like, the the offense needed to play perfect in this game yes. against a really, really, really good defense. And that's that's not an ask that you can make for this offense. Because it's not an ask you can make for any offense. The Chiefs couldn't have done that. Like, the, the Dolphins could have lost games like this. There are teams who are very good who would have lost this game because they need to be perfect across the board. And when you are holding your offense back in the way that the Seahawks are holding this off, that Pete Carroll is holding this offense back, you can't win. Punting from the 50-yard line is trying not to win the game. And that's why Pete Carroll's you frustrating. You just said they were always trying to win. But in Pete Carroll's perspective, he's trying to I win. Agree. I agree. Do, I do not think Mariners' front office, in their perspective, are doing everything. Mariners... Ownership. They understand that they could be doing more, yes. Yes. But, like, Pete Carroll, in his mind, is doing what he thinks is best to win the game. He's just wrong about it. Yeah. He just doesn't understand how you win games. If we had fucking Dan Campbell, do you know how amazing that would be? Like, there are coaches out there. The problem is, for every Dan Campbell out there, there's, there's a Brandon There's Dan. a Brandon Staley. <laughs> Dan Campbell is a one-of-one one coach, I think. But, like... Just the the balls to go for it the first time, and then to do it again from the eight. I mean, first off, there is a coach who also has those the, balls in in the NFL. Yeah, in the NFL is Oregon. There are a handful in college, but like, fair. There's also a lot more coaches in college. Uh, college is a place where you can explore more. <laughs> the studio space. Yeah, like, but like, it, it's frustrating knowing that these these human beings walk the earth people who understand how to do this and that we are left with Pete Carroll. And the other frustrating thing about Pete Carroll is he's so close to being the perfect coach. Like if Pete Carroll could just be there. That's why it's a Pete be, coaster. It's not a little bit of a figurehead. Look, there, was, there was no, you can't argue that Pete Carroll isn't a winning coach. There was no highs on the Jim L. Mora ride that you were just like going around in a circle and, and maybe derailing. I will say that the victories against Tennessee and Philadelphia in high, it's one of those things like uh, the losses to the Rams. You're like, ah, all right, the Rams are actually good. These the Tennessee loss is like, oh, the Seahawks are awful. 
the, being that close to Tennessee, or even the Philadelphia game. Well, just a, it was like Syracuse. wow, they only beat the Eagles by one touchdown at home by by three points. Derrick Henry being unstoppable against them. They and are then just bad. immediately returning to not being able to get anything going on the ground. It is a bad defense, and it's a like, bad run know, defense. Like you're yelling at me like I disagree. No, I'm I've been mad. saying this all year. I'm mad about it. It was it's. Spoon had the one amazing play, but even having Spoon back and not making a difference was a little bit frustrating. He didn't play a ton. He played 49% of snaps. He was still like working his way back into it. Okay, that's what I'm going to chalk it up to. Reg Woolen played every defensive snap. Intriguingly, Trey Brown played just seven. He, he's the guy Reguelen who's now the definitely played out. one defensive snap. He got his ass handed to him. It was like, that. I saw that and I was like, Pete must be fuming right now. The number one task, task of a cornerback is not tackling. I, I think he can over-index on tackling from your cornerback. I, I don't necessarily agree on that. I mean, look, Devin Witherspoon is not... Him, him and Rick Wollen are not the same person. Like, I, they are, sure. They are not in the same conversation. To re- Devin Witherspoon's Pro Bowl is, does not look like Rick Wollen's Pro Bowl. But... Uh, I mean, Rick Wollen had a really terrific season last year. I think Devin Witherspoon's was first of many, and Rick Wollen's was... He made the Pro Bowl. But this time, a like, year ago, you didn't think Rick Wollen's was going to be... I mean, the, the, I I was skeptical of the naysayers of the, who said he had already passed his peak or whatever. I mean, but we, like we all knew the they, court, the interceptions were, were going right. to rest of the mean. The haters were a little right. I'm surprised that his coverage has gone, that his tackling has been this much more of an issue. I will say, like, like Rick Wool was drafted to be a long term project. The fact that he was oh, no. a Pro Bowler instantly was a jackpot. Like. To, development is not linear. I think it's very possible that Reg Woolen could have an awesome season next year. So I, I which, just, which is also interesting because I was like, this guy during the research on Michigan, I was like, oh my god, this guy is so Seahawksy as a quarterback. About which player? We'll see. Any, yeah. Anyway, I, I, it just, it was such a frustrating game to watch because of how bad the defense is and just how how much Pete Carroll didn't respond to how bad the defense was. I don't think Pete Carroll knows that the defense is as bad as it is. Well, this is like the blessing and the curse of Pete Carroll is that he's always optimistic. You should be... Why can't you be optimistic about your offense, though? Why do you only have to be optimistic about your defense? Because that's the thing. When you say Pete Carroll's optimistic, he's pessimistic about his offense gaining a yard. That's a yard. a very fair point. So... It's not that Pete Carroll's optimistic. It's that Pete Carroll is stupid as far as how football should be played. As far as decisions with regards to fourth downs, Pete Carroll is a bad coach. Yes. Uh, maybe Jordan Brooks was the problem. He participated in walkthrough Wednesday and could return after missing last week. Uh, Jamal Adams it's went on IR. too late. His season is assuredly I, over. I agree that Jordan Brooks would have been helpful to be out there, but like I... I'm just a little skeptical that Jordan Brooks is the difference of, of like course. 150 yards. Yeah, I agree. Uh, playoff scenario for the Seahawks, as you alluded to, they need a win. And for a second consecutive year, they need an opponent like... with nothing to play for to win at Lambeau Field. This being the red hot Chicago Bears. So lifelong Bears fans all of a sudden, although sort of because I'm not as excited about making the playoffs as I was would have been last year. Let me Let me ask you that question. Do we want to make the playoffs? I think ultimately the answer is yes. I don't think that... You just said the Seahawks are not going to learn lessons even if they miss the playoffs. Oh, I think we want to make the playoffs. And and here's the other thing that's frustrating about Pete Carroll. I think they're going to make the playoffs. And I think they might win a game in the playoffs. 
it's it, that's the other element of it is like San Francisco's out of the mix now. It would have been nice as as much as you you talked about the Eagles loss on Sunday. It would have been great if they would have won because yes. you wanted them to be potentially be the first round opponent. But Detroit, they already won at. Dallas, they came very close to winning at. It's not like it's inconceivable that they could go win either of those places. I do not agree that I think they are going to make the playoffs because as good as the as well as the Bears have been playing, I, I think the Packers will still most likely win. And also the Seahawks might lose to the Cardinals. Oh, I I, th- I think the Bears are going to win that game. Whatever happens with the Seahawks, I think the Bears are going to win that game. I think the Bears are actually weirdly more incentivized to win the game than the Packers are. What? I think they want the... the you think the Packers want to miss the playoffs? I don't think the Packers want to miss the playoffs. I think the Bears care so much... About ending the Packers? About knocking the Packers out of the playoffs. And, like, Justin Fields is still kind of playing for his job. Yeah, Justin Fields hasn't really been the reason they've been winning. It's been this the defense. amazing defense. But, like, the defense feels the same way. Again, an 8-9 and season for the Bears, after everything that they have been through, is a monster season. And they look at those Lions, and the Lions being an 11-5, and they're like, that is us next year. So I don't know what these numbers are. I have not looked them up. I had the Packers over as a lock. The Bears under is a lock. And week one, the Packers demolished the Bears. I was feeling pretty good about those The NFC picks. North is just so, so funky with those, with three teams all within each other at 7-9, 8-8. Yeah. And uh, there have been various points. I thought both of those were, were certain to hit. And now all of a sudden, if the Bears win, <laughs> it could, could scuttle both But like of this Bears team, they kind of throttled the Lions. That was on Thanksgiving, right? Yes. 28 to 13 just crushed them and then lost at like you look at them yeah i you look at the cardinals last two weeks like they got dominated by the bears and then beat the eagles <laughs> it's kind of wild but i like, i think that bears team is good and i think they they want to beat the packers so badly yeah but i think they wanted to beat the packers so badly all the other times that they lost to the packers because the packers better, have owned the bears they're not that is not that is the Aaron Rodgers Packers. Get well, that Packers again, Jordan out of your Love mind. did this to them in week one. I I think the Bears are also aware that Jordan Love did this to them in week one. You can be aware of something and not what change it. What is the it. spread in that game, by the way? The Packers are favored. Obviously. It's probably like Packers minus three or something. I think it's a little larger than that. Minus three. Whoa. It's Justin Fields. Uh Packers minus three. Anyway, my money is strongly on the Bears in that game. Okay. So, well, speaking of not actually having incentive to win, Arizona enters Sunday in a three-way tie for the league's second worst record at 4 and 12. The Bears have already clinched the top pick via Carolina. Uh they also have an extra first-round pick coming from last year's trade down with the Houston Texans. The t- the Cardinals do. Yes. Yeah. The Cardinals were started 1-7 with Joshua Dobbs at quarterback, including their loss at Lumen Field. They then lost their lone start by fifth-round pick Clayton Toon before Kyler Murray returned from his ACL injury. Uh, they went three and they are three and four thus far with Murray matching his three wins and eleven starts last season, albeit with a minus thirty-five point differential in that span. And coming off a 35-31 win at Philadelphia to knock the Eagles out of first place in the NFC East. They scored 29 points after trailing 21-6 at halftime and did that despite losing left tackle DJ Humphreys to an ACL tear late in the third quarter. Uh, Kyler Murray coming back from that ACL has the lowest QBR of his career at 48. 
His 65% completions are his lowest since his rookie season, which kind of makes sense moving away from the air raid style offense that they ran under Cliff Kingsbury. His 6.5 yards per attempt are actually up from last season, but his sack rate is his highest since his rookie season, and his rushing value is down a little bit from last year. Sunday was Murray's best game probably of the season. He went 25 of 31 for 232 yards, and three touchdowns was sacked just once for four yards. The receiver to watch is second-year tight end Trey McBride, who's had a breakout season. He's had 78 catches for 791 yards, but he's averaging seven catches per game, nearly 70 yards, and Zach Ertz went down with an injury and was subsequently released at Ertz's request. There are wide receivers Marquise Brown and Rondale Moore averaging less than six yards per target apiece. Michael Wilson, the rookie from Stanford, has been the dangerous big play threat, averaging 14.7 yards per reception at 9.0 yards per target. Troublingly for the Seahawks. Oh, God. The Cardinals are number five in rush EPA per play. James Conner being good in Arizona is just like, I did Very not strange. have that Speaking of guys who have been on your fantasy team and not been good, uh, James Conner and backup Amari Demarcado, who started against the Seahawks, have both averaged 4.9 yards per carry. With uh, Conner out, Demarcado had 58 yards on just 13 carries in Seattle. Despite hiring a coach with a defensive background <laughs> in Jonathan Gannon, <laughs> The Cardinals remain dismal on that side of the ball. They're number 29 in defensive DBA, dead last in EPA per drop back. Opponents completing 69% of their passes for 7.7 yards per attempt. They've got a below average sack rate, and Dennis Gardeck is the only player with more than four this season. They are 26th in EPA per rush allowed, and head of only the Cowboys in rushing success rate, where the Seahawks are a solid 30th out of 32. In success in that rate? State. That's a Ken yeah. Walker stat right there. No, no, no. That's a point oh, success okay. rate. So. That's going to be a weird Carol game. right there. Sorry. No, it's going to be a weird game. I think the Seahawks are going to win this game. And I think the offense is going to do enough. They're, they're going to get ahead. And the Cardinals are going to be just, it's going to keep getting closer and closer or whatever. But like, I think the Seahawks offense against, they, I, I believe in the Seahawks offense right now. Seeing the way that Geno Smith and DK Metcalf are playing together right now, like DK is at kind of another level. I feel like. I want Noah fan. Oh, and Noah fan. Got a red zone target. Yeah. Didn't catch it. But there was a target. Uh, but I, I think they have finally kind of unlocked the offense. They've included JSN now. And, like, it's interesting how Tyler, Tyler Lockett had one reception in the game. Is that right? Yeah. And had a, had a ball that he had knocked out. It was like, we're starting to witness the Seahawks offense of the future. And wouldn't it be amazing to just drop Roma doing say in there? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or the CS going to get that number f- top 10 pick? Top five pick? <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if it's top five. Uh, do you think this draft podcast, do you think Michael Penix can play his, has maybe even played his way? Is he a first round pick right now? I don't know. I, I certainly, his chances are way better right now. Again, I think it's whether, you, are you a dome team? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying whether he'll perform like a first round pick, but like I don't think most teams are doing that much research on how he's doing, or maybe maybe they are. I don't, I don't know. think teams are, have, have noticed that he's really good when it's when it's in a dome. Seeing some we can't his... be the only ones that have noticed. This. <laughs> it's weird. nobody else is talking about it. I guess uh, should I pass that along to ESPN Stats and Info and have the broadcast should. on yeah, Monday? You, you should. If you get that on the broadcast, that would be an amazing thing. If ESPN's Kevin Pelton, it's like it's on ESPN's, but not that bonkers. If but I, like, if I if I message them with a link to my Blue Sky about. <laughs> <laughs> 
they would they would quote it as if you were just some guy. <laughs> like they would have no idea that you worked for ESPN. No, I mean I would send it to them on Slack. <laughs> you definitely should. Wow, people out there, if you're listening right now, and you see stats about Michael Penix in in good weather versus bad weather in domes uh, versus not, you know who to thank. All right. Well, we'll, we'll consider that. There's, they're going to have a graphic, a whole long graphic of like build the dome for Michael Penix Jr. Uh, draft podcast about him being drafted by Wait. the Saints. Uh, this is an idea for home field apparel or who are the, you know, uh, simply Seattle. Uh-huh. Michael Penix with the kingdom roof over him. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, build the dome. <laughs> we don't, I mean, this is the last game. Was <laughs> it's Unless there's some rule changes. Who knows if it's his last game in Seattle. <laughs> there I, we go. I I think that his his durability is still going to be a concern for NFL teams. I, I think that's the biggest question. People were talking about his age, and it's like he's 23 years old. Like, his age is a big factor in college, but as an NFL quarterback, who's going to be coming in? Uh, I mean, the research I did last year suggested that older no. quarterbacks are are very unsuccessful for the most part but obviously we're in a different era where are younger quarterbacks do they actually develop because i don't know if i believe in quarterback development they do that's that was part of the appeal of anthony richardson it's more that basically if if you now the the reason it might not hold anymore is you know other than the ex-baseball players were like way off the charts in terms of age the the chris wankies of the world if you didn't go to the NFL after four years. It was like, why aren't you going to the NFL? And it's probably because there's something wrong with you. And now because of the fact something wrong with you, there's your game won't translate to the NFL as well as it does in yeah. college. It now with NIL, that, that equation has I changed. I think like there's actually a lot of older quarterbacks, senior quarterbacks who are in the top of the draft. Jane Daniels is a senior, Bo Nix. Well, the, again, there's just not been this many sixth year quarterbacks in college football history. Is Drake it's pretty unprecedented? He's not that old, I don't think. He's a little bit younger. Yeah. Um, I but but Bo Nix and Penix and, and Jaden Daniels in particular. Yeah. He's twenty one. He'll be twenty two when the season starts. But we can do our draft podcast in the draft. We still have the college football the draft playoff draft to get through. I'm curious. Seeing seeing the way that Penix moved in the pocket and some of those throws I downfield were like his his touch. Also, that I think he the, has the right handed Penix video is going to sell oh. a lot of skeptics. Have you have I haven't seen this? You haven't seen it? Uh uh-uh. uh. I'll have to have to post that's what I was trying to like Luca is like he has a weird release saying and I'm, or arm angle or whatever and I'm like it, he doesn't he does not I was I he does seeing, still feel a little low even right-handed I remember seeing a Tua video right-handed yeah. and I was like oh my he looks it like changed everything I was like your brain just gets broken when you it see does. a quarterback left-handed it's really weird it's a market inefficiency in human, my opinion human minds are bad I've been saying it. Look, I have an idea. Oh no! Hockey, hockey, and outdoor stadiums, <laughs> fifty thousand seaters. <laughs> More advanced brains to be able to see quarterbacks at left-handed quarterbacks as right-handed quarterbacks. He's fixed soccer. He's using <laughs> AI to draft quarterbacks, left-handed quarterbacks. He's <laughs> fixed hockey now too. I, I love your idea of the ESPN stats and info thing, and I do think that they would credit just be like somebody, just a Kevin Pelton on Blue Sky. Uh, maybe not with, if it's if, I feel like there, there was a thing where like some NFL player interacted with like some I can't remember who it was like maybe it was even Deion Sanders like a legendary safety and he thought that he was just a fan or whatever and he was like <laughs> I was just I was just uh, chosen for the Pro Bowl but thank you or whatever <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I was driving yesterday listening to the new Cube 93 103.7 from the South End. And they wow, had it. That's so funny because you know what I was driving yesterday listening to? The new Cube 93? Yeah. Hell yeah, you were. Because we were we were using your vehicle. Oh, and that was what was on. <laughs> and the Bluetooth didn't work. No, we we changed it to that. Oh, you probably I I just couldn't show I can show you how the Bluetooth works. Yeah. Uh well, can, if could... you ever borrow my car again, <laughs> I'll show you. In this unlikely scenario. <laughs> but, but we were jamming out. It was a great time. Uh wanna be a baller. Um, anyway, there was an ad on and it was for like a, like house of highlights style NBA daily podcast. And they were like, hooking you up with your daily NBA podcast, all the latest news from the association covering everything. And I was imagining it was like with ESPN's Kevin Pelton and Zach Lowe. <laughs> That's what I was imagining. You, you guys on a like hype NBA podcast <laughs> being like, OG Anunobi is balling out in New York. And it was like. ESPN's Kevin Pelton says his true shooting percentage is 68% in New York. <laughs> I, I love the idea of the, there being a like super hype podcast. And I was doing it. I was doing it in the car for Galen when they were like in the voice of the person. I was like, and with Zach Lowe, <laughs> no response. Have you seen the tweet about <laughs> when the, when the ladies roll up at the light and you're l- bumping the love pouch? <laughs> I forget exactly what it is. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, Kayleen, Kayleen did not think it was funny, even in the slightest. <laughs> All right. Well, should we do a percentage chances of victory here and move on again to the college football we're, playoff? We're already talking about the college football playoff. Uh, who even cares? No, I think the Seahawks are going to win. I think it's like a 68% chance of victory. I think it's actually high. I think they're going to win this game. I think it's like a 70, 75% chance of victory. Right, 65% chances of making the playoffs. I think they're better than 50%. Imagine the Bears I think just they're... knocked off the Packers, eliminated the Packers from the playoffs in their house, 8-9 and nine season, complete turnaround. Well, obviously and they would... then get the number one pick in the draft. Yeah, that is pretty wild. It's just, it all is, it is coming together. All things are coming up somehow, I say this. In football, professionally, Chicago. Well, a year ago, everything was coming up. Detroit. Exactly. So, exactly. And then, I just, the synergy is too real to, to just ignore that the exact same situation is going to happen Not again. the exact same situation, because these games will be simultaneous this year as opposed to yes. last year where the Seahawks got to go home and watch the Lions send them to their playoffs. Okay, now we're talking Huskies. So they're playing Michigan in the... In the college football playoff can, can championship game. Can I give you some further thoughts after after the game? Because here's what I did. I went I went on the treadmill yesterday. I turned on 20 minute recap of UW. I it was I was so hyped, right? UW versus Texas in in 20 minutes, and I was watching the game, and like you kind of forget what happens, and I'm like, oh man, we need a drive here, and I'm like I'm like, so did they punt on this series? And I was like, no, the C- or the Huskies hit a field goal to go up nine. There's no way that that happened. And so I was watching the touchdown that happened before, the plays that happened before then. Then the Huskies came out to go up nine with like a minute 50 left. And I was like, what? They actually scored on that drive? How did it get that close? I I don't know. I rewatched the game and still couldn't understand the situation. I thought that they just, I thought 
I thought everything was advanced. I forgot about a whole possession that the Huskies had to go up two scores. And somehow it still ended up that close. I, good God! They gave up the touchdown so fast. and the, the They used one, one timeout. One timeout on the series. The, the, the timeout, I, I think maybe this makes college football a little bit more exciting, but there are two rules that do not make sense in college football. The timeout after the first down, the, the break to move the chains, literally doesn't make sense. I suppose. And the injury rule that if an offensive player gets injured, the clock can just stop. It, it's completely nonsensical. We literally dealt with this against Oregon. We were almost screwed by this exact rule two times in one year. And the football I mean, it's gods not, it's not the same rule. shine down on, I dare say, Washington? That they overcame this two different times, mm-hmm. this bullshit rule in the same year. It is true. Okay, one other thought the, that I had. Well, we should, something we did not mention on the postgame pod. The JV on green penalty, that was pretty brutal in its own right. The catch interference penalty? Oh, well, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was the right call, though. No, no, but just like, why are you risking that penalty in that moment? Oh, no, the Huskies did a lot. For a team that, actually, I wouldn't say the Huskies are, they are a very polished offense, and they do some good things defensively. I wouldn't describe them as like a polished team. If that makes sense. Well, guess who didn't look very polished on on Monday? Michigan. Yeah. Okay. Wait. I, I want to get there in one second. But I don't have a lot of notes on that one. Do you remember? Christian Cable, by the way, noted in his story that the defense was like annoyed at the fact that they were planning on well, we're only going to have to defend for ten seconds here, and then all of a sudden they were like, "Oh, that I, I hadn't thought about that." That basically, like, they're like scheming to defend for ten yeah. seconds, and then all of a sudden there's fifty seconds. No, I could see how both the defensive staff and the players. Do you think there's any argument the Huskies should have gone for that fourth down? Oh, I was kind of thinking maybe they should have, yeah. Because with the penalty, they didn't end up gaining very much field position. So After the punt? Yeah. Uh, maybe. I mean... Just one to tuck away. I think that Kalen DeBoer will do things right with regards to fourth downs on Monday. <clears throat> but So there was one other thought that I had. Do you remember Oregon, Washington? They happened twice in Seattle, Washington. End of the first half, right in front of us on the other, on the far side of the East End Zone, there was a play to end the half. Oregon went for the touchdown. Correct. To end the first half, the ball gets swatted away. I haven't gone back and looked at that play again, but it was in my head. It was almost exactly the same type of play that happened that Elijah Jackson had to end the game against Texas. And it was such a massive play. It was to the exact same corner of the end zone where the ball gets swatted away. I I have no memory of this. And there was such a massive play in that game to hold Oregon to not score a touchdown there. So I was going to look up to see if I could find that one. Okay, well, you do that. Well, we talk a little bit. uh, Well, let's start here that uh, the good news coming out of that that post-game recap podcast, we were very dubious about the availability for Dylan Johnson in the uh, championship and Ryan Grubb told KGR Tuesday, Kalen DeBoer reiterated in his media availability Wednesday that they expect Johnson to play against Michigan. The injury late in the semifinal was an aggravation of the foot injury. He's played through since the Oregon state game, not new damage. So it sounds like he's going to continue to gut it out. And I, I very much hope that they're correct, that this is not going to affect Dylan Johnson long-term, but, uh, uh, 
kudos to him for playing through clearly a lot of pain if it is not, in fact, hampering him. Uh, now let's talk about Michigan's season. With Jim Harbaugh suspended for the season's first three games due to NCAA violations, and uh, Michigan faced an SEC-style non-conference schedule, the hardest opponent they faced per FBI efficiency was number 67 UNLV, Never mind that UNLV was substantially better than Michigan State. Uh, Boise oh, State my. was the toughest non-conference foe either of these two teams faced, having crushed UNLV in the Mountain West title game. Michigan didn't face a ranked team until Week 10. Also didn't win by fewer than 24 points in that span, allowing 47 total points on defense through their first eight games. They then arm's length Penn State and Happy Valley without Harbaugh, this time suspended by the Big Ten after the investigation of Michigan analyst Connor Stallions leading operation to steal steins at games of future opponents, which is prohibited. They survived a scare at Maryland, their one kind of close game against a non-elite team, before hosting Ohio State in a battle of unbeatens. Late interception sealed their 30-24 win, their third in a row, over the Buckeyes. They then crushed Iowa 26-0 in the Big Ten Championship to seal their third consecutive trip to the playoffs. Michigan was blown out by Georgia two years ago, then lost a thrilling semifinal against TCU last year. Their Rose Bowl matchup with Alabama featured just 23 points in the first three quarters, then a flurry of late scores. The Wolverines drove 75 yards in 307 for the final touchdown to tie the game, stopped Alabama's drive, and then needed just two plays to score in overtime before stopping the tide again on fourth and goal from the three to win it and head to the championship game. Dominic Hampton tipped it away. Okay. Is who it was. Do you want to watch this play? <laughs> sure. Okay. So so first first down, they picked Elijah Jackson was on the other side of the field. You're gonna have to send me the link to this at this period uh, of time. So the first so play can, they picked on Elijah Jackson. Second down, they threw it short to Mish Powell. They're the three. Running back drops the ball here. That was kind of similar to fourth down with five seconds left instead of kicking the field goal. Throws it up. Boom! See that exact same slap from Dominic Hampton? I suppose so. That one didn't go up. Like it wasn't what was quite such a great play up. by Elijah Jackson is that it went directly out of bounds. So there's like no risk to it. That one could have been caught on the ricochet. No, it goes way out of bounds. Oh, oh, okay. I guess I wasn't seeing that. Yeah, Dominic Dominic Hampton had an like. So is that a coaching? If it is, it's great. (laughs) That'd be wild if no one has asked about that. Uh, But a very similar play, and I mean, if they score a touchdown there, we're losing that game. Probably no. So these two teams, as we talked about in the emergency pod, played each other in 2021. In a game that it was certainly was not the low point of the Husky season, but illustrated where that Michigan was as a program headed in one direction at that period of time, which was to the college football playoff, and Washington was headed in a different direction, which was Jimmy Lake being relieved of his duties as football coach later that season. Uh, QBs are probably the single biggest difference from that last meeting. Cade McNamara started for Michigan at QB, throwing for 44 yards. Insane. <laughs> well, Dylan Morris started for UW. Actually had a really solid game in that one. Uh, Richard Newton and Cam Davis split carriers for the Huskies in the backfield. Well, Taj Davis and Terrell Bynum were their leading receivers. On the Wolverine side, Brock Corum is like the the holdover. He ran for 171 yards in that game, splitting carries with the Haskins. Haskins. Is Michigan dominated? Blake Corum. Not the Brock. Huskies on the ground. Yeah, I don't know why I wrote that down wrong. Okay. Uh, there was a dramatic stylistic contrast between the two semifinals. 
Michigan averaged 5.9 yards per play. Alabama 4.6 is compared to 7.6 for the Huskies and 7.0 for Texas. The Wolverines actually rate, despite that, is having the better offense by FPI efficiency over the course of the season, ranking third in the NCAA behind LSU and Oregon. But the strength of this team is still their top-ranked defense, and the SP-plus metric from my ESPN colleague uh, Bill Connolly had Michigan 12th on offense, which seems a little more accurate, I think, to their strength. So they they did face a lot of top-10 defenses. The Huskies didn't face one until Texas in the Sugar Bowl. But the Huskies face some good defenses. They face good defenses, but not as many elite defenses. And, and uh, okay, keep going. No, we can get into it. I, I care more about, not about the defenses that they faced. I care more about the offenses that Michigan faced on the other side I, of the ball. I think we'll discuss that, yeah. So, I, I think just in general, when I look at the Big Ten and Big Ten football, like, they're kind of just playing a radically different sport than we're playing over here. Correct. And then all, basically all the teams like who are coming a, on. a long period of time, there was a stereotype that this was true of the SEC, and then the SEC got religion on the spread offense. No, I mean LSU is like USC to the to the extreme. Yes, this year, like your whole thing about Jaden Daniels. Like the reason LSU isn't playing this weekend. I'm or last sorry, weekend, but there is it because ESPN of Jaden list of top 100 players in the college season, and Jaden Daniels was still number one. And I'm like, college season is still going on for some of these players. Like, how could Michael Penix after that game be number two? If he wasn't, let's say that they extended Heisman voting to after this game, there's, there is literally not a vote for Jaden Daniels. But if they extended, everyone says this, but if they did the Heisman voting next Tuesday, it might not be Penix either. I cannot imagine a... They would just give it to J.J. McCarthy if Michigan wins. I mean, maybe, but like J.J. McCarthy wasn't really in the conversation. Like, Michael Penix Jr. had one of the best games in a college football playoff game ever. Uh, without question. It's just like looking back and thinking back and watching again, watching again some of these throws that he had. I'm sorry, but like Jane Daniels could never, especially against a defense as good as Texas is. Uh, I don't know. Let's see. I mean, they they played against Alabama, right? <clears throat> I guess they're in opposite divisions, so they may not have played against Alabama. The SEC actually did not. That Alabama was the only top ninth best defense. defense. Penn, Texas was number. They were higher than this. The Huskies shredded them so badly that they went down. I mean, they went down from six to eight. It's not like they went down that far. Wow, UCLA had a good defense. Are you sure about that? But but when I look at the offenses that Michigan played along the way, like they just weren't playing teams that were similar to UW in basically any way aside from Ohio State. And it was one game. Jaden Daniels did not have a very good game against Alabama. He was 15 of 24 for 219 and, yards, and two I, touchdowns, one interception. But, be, oh, I guess, well, he did not have, yeah, no, that was a pretty good game. He only threw for 219 yards. He ran 11 times for 116 three, three yards and a touchdown. That's why he had a 98 QBR in that game. Okay, not bad. My point is Jaden Daniels is good. No, I'm not saying Jaden Daniels isn't good. Michael Penix had the most notable year of any player in college football. He also had a 98 QBR. He had precisely the same QBR. It's like kind of inarguable how good of a year he had. Like, and, and Jaden Daniels was fine. But I, again, it's just like, fine, whatever. 
Uh, but when you see Michigan playing against a team like Ohio State, which again, Ohio State's offense was good. Ohio State's offense is not one of these West Coast offenses. Like there's a reality to this that I watched a lot of Big Ten football this year. Big Ten football just does not look like West Coast football. It does not look like Oregon. It does not look like Washington. It does not look like USC. I think and, Iowa, Ohio State does. I, I think that's probably. But they also gave up points to Ohio State at home. Like, sure. there's really only one game that you can pinpoint that Michigan played that was even really similar to this type of game. Because most of those, when you're looking at Big Ten offenses and FPI efficiency outside of Ohio State, you have to scroll all the way down to, um, I mean, Penn State was 26. Yeah. But like, the, I saw the Penn Huskies State. played five games against offenses rated better than these, the second best in, in Pac 12 play than the second best offense that. Ohio State play, or that Michigan played. I think that's partially why this is a fascinating game, but also Alabama is not an offense like this. Alabama is a good offense, but Alabama is not at the level of some of these teams. UW had to play Oregon, which I believe is number number two two times. Correct. Like they are battle tested against playing against teams like this. The difference to me is how they do it. And Michigan wants to do it so much on the ground versus Oregon, who wants to do it both ways. They want to pass and they want to run. But like Bo Nix is a more dynamic quarterback. As little as I want to give him credit, he is a better and more dynamic quarterback than than JJ McCarthy is. Yeah, I mean he's been he's called on to do a lot more. I mean McCarthy's development is still probably the biggest development between these and the this and the past Michigan teams that crashed out in the semifinals. He completed 73% of his passes for 9.1 yards per attempt, up from 65% and 8.4 in his first year as a starter and finished third in QBR like they were in uh, FBI efficiency, albeit with way less volume than the top Heisman finishers. He was 12th in EPA, total EPA, and he threw eight passes against Penn State. Eight. Eight. Uh, didn't have more than 150 yards in any of their final four games entering the semifinal. He did need to do a bit more against Alabama, stepped up with 221 yards and three TDs. I was shocked by this. So predictably, McCarthy is outstanding in, on first down because that's often play action situations. He completes 75% of his passes for 9.7 yards, yards per attempt on first down. But his numbers on third and seven plus, way better than Michael Penix Jr.'s. <laughs> he... Completed 74% of his passes on third and seven plus. 52% of the time they picked up the first down. Penix only completed 50% of his passes and picked up the first down 34% of is the this time. Th is this just randomness? Or do you think this is skill? I mean, it's not a huge sample. It's only like 27 attempts or something like that. But I don't think it's complete randomness. Like, I, I do think McCarthy is a better quarterback than you're probably giving him credit for. I'm not saying he's a bad quarterback. I'm saying Bo Nix is better. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. I But I think people think of him as like strictly a game manager, and I do think he has the ability to do more than that. He definitely, he did more than that against Alabama. Yeah. Uh, they have packages for the backup quarterback. Alex Orgy is a second quarterback on the field, but they don't really see him all that great. He has not thrown a pass this season. I think so. he's going to throw a pass against the Huskies. I mean, this would be the time to do it. Like when Miles Gaskin finally attempted a pass out of the Wildcat in his final game at UW in the Rose Bowl against Ohio State. Uh, Michigan's top three receivers, including tight end Colston Loveland, have almost identical catch totals but got there in different ways. Roman Wilson has more EPA than both Loveland and Cornelius Johnson combined and 12 touchdowns to their five. So he's the guy to watch. He had four catches for 73 yards the in the Rose receiver. Bowl, scored the tie-in TD. 
I'm kind of surprised Corum averages just 4.7 yards per carry. Like, I assume no, his I stats are going to be way more dominant than that. Down from 5.9 last season when he was a full-time starter for the first time. Hasn't had more than 88 yards in the last three games, albeit all against top 10 defenses by FPI efficiency. Uh, the reason Corum remains a first-team All-America in most selections is he does have 25 touchdowns. Yes, four more than anyone else in FPS. No, it, it was kind of kind of shocking seeing the touchdowns, but like, who cares? Ultimately, like scoring touchdowns is not that impressive, and doesn't you know it's not doesn't mean that he's that much better of a running back. Backup Donovan Edwards has been phased out late in the season. Just eight combined carries the last two games. He's averaging 3.5 yards per carry, which. Again, seems inexplicable. Uh, the right guard, Zach Zinter, was a unanimous first-team All-America, but <laughs> suffered a fractured tibia infibula against Ohio State ending his season. I'm so fascinated what it's going to look like, Big Ten football. I'm going to say two years from now. Because these are all, all these numbers you're talking about, these are numbers happening against Big Ten teams. I, I know. And I think the way that they approach these situations, even that third down, the third down number that you're talking about, it's largely a Big Ten stat. And, like, I think that these teams are overly focused on stopping the run, and that is what they're thinking about. They're trying to hold Blake Corum, and they probably were thinking more about stopping the run on those third downs than they probably should have been. Well, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but I hope that is not the case. Uh, The Michigan defense, just awesome across the board. They allow 3.0 yards per carry, which ranks eighth in the country, a touch more than Texas, 2.9. And we saw the Huskies' inability to run the ball between the tackles against Texas. Uh, So you want to throw the ball instead? Oh, they're fifth lowest opponent yards per attempt at 5.6, and they forced the 13th most turnovers per game. It's a balanced pass rush. Nobody with more than Jalen Harrell's six and a half sacks, but eight players have at least two and a half. And converted wide receiver Mike Sainristil, who had a catch against UW in 2021 the last time these two teams met when he was still on offense, has five picks and two pick sixes. He's very much like Richard Sherman and Rick and converted wide receiver, except he's, he's already doing it in college. Those guys didn't really do it until they got to the NFL. So I would say that like my biggest fear, and I'm sure this is the case for all Husky fans, after seeing the way Texas moved the ball on the ground and remembering back to the last Michigan game, is that the Huskies will just get dominated in the run game. And then same thing we just talked about with the Seahawks against the Steelers, have to bring too many guys into the box and suddenly that opens up, you know, the the down the play action passes for McCarthy down the field. I mean, I think that's kind of what we're all expecting here. But I'm not sure if that's the best offense. And I think it has to be a situation that the Huskies have, we have to take it. We have to bend, but don't break, bend, but don't break force Michigan to do that. Get to the red zone, kick field goals, force Michigan to do that. Get a hold force Michigan to do that. Make a mistake. I think the Huskies defensively have to Pete Carroll this game. (laughs) Because it's Not going to be downs. frustrating. It's going to be frustrating. Yes. And that's what that's what Michigan does. They are coming into this game I mean, with I was, the intent to run. I was seeing the Quandre Diggs quotes in Mike Sean Dugar's piece after that about the, the run defense and the, the way it's struggling for the Seahawks. And he was talking about like how demoralizing it is when the opponent runs the ball. And that game at Michigan Stadium, that's like the number one most visceral 
most demoralizing run game I have ever experienced in my life as a football fan. Now, now here's an argument for you. What if, let me throw this out there, Michigan isn't that good. <laughs> I do not throw that argument out there. I've, I've rejected that argument. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just putting it on the table. What if Big Ten football is so massively overrated right now that statistically, I, I'm sorry. I just but don't understand. How would how would FPI overrate Big Ten football? It's no not no way that the there's four no eye test. best defenses in the country are in the Big Ten. The stats can be skewed, can they not? They can, it's probably uh, sure. Maybe the defenses aren't big, that good, but that means then the Michigan offense is underrated because because they were scoring what against who? Maryland? Like, it's a zero-sum game. The teams play each other, and one team wins, and one team loses. I'm going to tell you this right now. Michigan has one good win for the entire season, and it happened on on Monday. And it was against an overrated team. Ohio State was good enough to play in the playoff. Ohio State barely beat Notre Dame. And how many good wins does Ohio State have? Okay. Ohio State had one half this of a good win. Like, I, I just, I'm throwing this, this out there. This is basically like in a color to... Uh, you know, a, a radio show in the SEC. to three to Missouri. You're you're calling into the Paul Feinbaum show with this argument. Paul, the Big Ten is overrated. They don't play football right. Fourteen to three to Missouri is what happened to Ohio State in their bowl game. Like and we can't pay attention to bowl games anymore because those are no longer a representative sample. Three points is a representative sample. It it's was not a down. It was a down Big Ten. If they are a good enough team, it does, their quarterback doesn't matter. If they are that good, USC didn't have their starting quarterback. They didn't have their second string quarterback. USD still scored points. The Big Ten is not that good at scoring points. Okay, well, you know when they scored enough points against Alabama. So you're you're. I mean, I guess this is your argument. That's their only good win. Well, good that's win. a really good win. So did Texas. Texas had a better win because they went into Alabama and did it. I'm just I'm throwing this out there as something that I I don't know if Michigan I think UW has played I in fact I know that UW has played a harder schedule than Michigan has played. Without question. And those two victories schedule. against Oregon are actually the two best victories in the country. I mean you take the neutral site one as probably a bigger victory, but that the win that they had against Oregon in the, like I think there's a good chance again I hate to compliment Oregon if UW wasn't in this game Oregon would be in this game the two best teams in the country might have been in the Pac-12 I mean I don't know that they would have been because I don't know that they would have played Texas but I think there's a good chance that Oregon and, and so your your argument to me relies is that on the national championship happened in Las Vegas one of the the two best teams in the country just like barely beat Arizona State and Washington State at home. I mean, we're we're playing in the national championship, so yes, that's my argument. Like, how is that not my argument? The argument should be more that Oregon, they lost to UW twice. The team that's playing in the national championship is the obvious one for being, like, win or lose, they're one of the two best teams in the country. I mean, I again, the case rule, the case rule Georgia on, is the other best team in the country, if we're being honest. There's probably the three best teams in the country, but, like... The case you, relies on Michael Penix Jr. in a dome. The case for the Huskies having any prayer in this game. Any prayer? Yeah. Are you kidding me? That you're the any prayer rule? Yeah. Wow. It's a four and a half point game. I mean, game. you're saying that which is Washington State's good win? Which is Michigan? Which is Arizona State's good win? It was win? raining that day. 
again. They won. They won the game. UW, I, I told you, UW has three good wins. They have Oregon twice and Texas once. You can't you can't overlook those Oregon games. They won those games. I don't know they why, why does Texas Vegas count and Ohio won. State doesn't count because Ohio State lost their bowl game. I just, this is your argument. Fine. Look, they have two good wins, and UW has three. But like, there's a what good did Penn chance. State do in their bowl game? I mean, I, again, I don't know that I don't think it matters anymore. But just out of curiosity, lost to Ole Miss. All right, it was a close game. But like, Penn State is just not that good of a team. They shut out Iowa. Everybody shuts out Iowa. I mean, clearly not everybody shuts out Iowa. They did manage to win the Big Ten last <laughs> somehow. The the wins that Penn State has were not particularly impressive. I think there was a very down Big Ten, for what it's worth. I think it was a very top-heavy Big Ten. How about that? So again, none of the statistics support this argument. It's, I'm sorry, but you have to buy that the top Four defenses in the country. You don't all have to necessarily Ten. buy FPI efficiency specifically. That's not the only stat that's out there. I think Michigan... Okay, I'm, I'm going to say I think that Michigan is good. I think Michigan is very good. Okay, thanks Thanks for acknowledging that the undefeated team that's in the... You, you just said, like, we have to we have to say that UW is one of the two best teams. They're in the national championship <laughs> game. But you can't say that about Michigan. Oregon is the other best team. The national UW stood in the way of Oregon. Uh, th- there is nothing that... If UW's offense can execute the way that they want to execute, which we saw them against a top five or top six defense. Is that where Texas was? They were the number six defense, yes. The sixth best defense in the country. And to wide receivers, they went 19 for 20 for 350 yards and three touchdowns. I mean, no, I think if you want to make a stronger case for UW, have you a chance in this game? Again, it rests on Michael Bennix Jr. is in the dome. And... Good offense beats good defense. That there's a certain level that you can get to offensively. I mean, Clemson are the second best ranked defense in the in the country. So I think you could stop right there. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I mean, offense is more important. Offense is better. Now, I think Michigan's offense is really good too. How about good offense beats good defense? Iowa played Michigan, and so and how much Michigan won at thirty-one to zero? Iowa's still the, the the fifth best defense in the country. And was t- I mean their offense was so bad. Yeah, but like they were the reverse LSU. When you look at the best offenses in the country, most of the teams were the best teams in the country, and it's not the same when you look at the best defenses. And I just think that the Michigan running the ball thing—that's it. I think there is a bravado. S and P Plus has three of the top four defenses in the country in the Big Ten. Actually, no, it might be the top four. Because Iowa could be third. I think there's a bravado to Big Ten football in a way that there actually isn't. You talked about the SEC and the SEC being willing to change. I'm sorry, old Big Ten football, because Big Ten football is about to change. But like, yeah, Iowa is third. So this is the top four in SP Plus as well. Great. I think sometimes it's hard for statistics to understand these things. But they can understand left handed quarterbacks. <laughs> Uh, Oregon State is really the shock, the shocking, very good offense. Yes. I mean, like, it felt unstoppable throughout the game that the Huskies repeatedly stopped them. Uh, Huskies now have to fifth offensively as well. I, I think this is going to be a very good game, is, is really what it comes down to. But, like, I think that there's a bravado to Big Ten football, old Big Ten football, in a way that the SEC, like you said, 
They they adopted the spread offense. The SEC cares about winning by any means necessary. And I think the Big Ten is playing a type of football that was played throughout the history of the Big Ten, but they have not adapted in that same way. I mean, it's weird because Ohio State, you would have said, was that good offensively a couple of years ago. I mean, they've performed they were, very well. They, they also they, were last year when they had C.J. Stroud at quarterback. I mean, they're still eighth in the country this year. It's not like Ohio State is bad. But you seem to not be acknowledging them as part of the Big Ten. Ohio State might have also, if they had that Michigan game at home, be playing UW in this game. That's correct. That's what I'm saying. That is a good victory. Beating Ohio State. Ohio State is a good team. It took you a while to get there. There was the Notre Dame close game <laughs> you referenced earlier. I think Ohio State probably is a little bit overrated, too. Uh, also, I think Notre Dame is probably a pretty good team in their own right. The, the running speaking the of speaking of doing UW, well in bowl games, they, I don't know if you saw Notre Dame's result. Were they playing Oregon State without yes. their quarterback? Like, it only count, doesn't count for Oregon State. <laughs> Oregon State had a lot of transfers. Oregon State did have it much worse. They, them and Florida State probably had it the worst. Ohio State scored three fucking points. I agree. That where was does, bad. Where does Missouri's defense rank? Number twenty-five. Like. I think that Michigan is going to go into this game with the intent to run the ball. And I think that they are going to not be quite as successful as they think they are going to be. I think this UW defense is a little bit underrated as well. Like, the times that UW's defense has been gashed has not been against the run. It has been when people are operating a two-minute offense, when people are desperate to throw the ball, getting the ball downfield. That shit works easy. Like, if that was J.J. McCarthy's game, I would be way more terrified of Michigan. Yeah, but part of the reason that happens is because of the fact that Elijah Jackson, hero of the Sugar Don't Bowl. Don't you dare say anything bad about Husky Elijah legend Jackson. for life is playing in part because he's a better run defender. They also have Dixon. their two safeties back. Basically, the first time that they've had their two safeties back has been two games. And in those games, they have beaten Oregon and they've beaten Texas. This is true. I mean, this is the reasons for optimism. Now, again, I'll say the defense wasn't very I don't think the defense was... The defense was good in that game. What are you talking about? There are There's situational defense that happens. and in, yeah, in, Sometimes in, the situational defense reply, relies on forcing a pair of fumbles. Four punts. The punts were at five, wasn't it? Five punts. The punts in were good. In neutral situations, the defense played pretty well. But this is also your point about they, they got a lot of penalties that got Texas off script. Did they? Yeah. A lot of penalties? Yes. You think Michigan's not going to commit penalties? They might. They were, they looked very sloppy. Was there Alabama. a single holding call against Texas in that game? I don't think there was. Those motherfuckers held. I saw it. There was not like they didn't. I hold think there the there was game. a holding penalty, but it was no. They took the 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 situation where Texas got pushed back to third. They started like third and four and ended third and twenty four or something like that. There was multiple penalties. On third down. I don't know. On one that. drive. Maybe there was. There was a, a chop block at some point. But that, that was, was defensive. a, defen- a defensive yeah. chop block. Um, <clears throat> but like, I see Blake Corham in these games, and I'm like, 22 for 88 against Ohio State? Like, he has not... He has had a probably less impressive season than some of Texas's running backs. Like... I agree with that. It is... Blake Corum, the touchdowns are great and it's dandy, but like just because they're running him near the goal line doesn't really mean that much. It means that JJ McCarthy didn't throw as many touchdowns, is all it means. And if they're getting to the five and they run Blake Corum in, great. I don't give a fuck who scores the touchdown. 
That doesn't make me more well, scared of Blake Corum. You actually do, because you I, just talked about I'm, needing to hold them to field goals. I'm in the concerned about Blake Corum from the 20 all the way down. I just don't think you can take what Blake, Blake Corum did against everyone else and apply it to a team that has, in their last two games, averaged, allowed more than six yards per carry on the ground. Leverage seven and a half to USC. I mean, yes, injuries were a factor in that. Uh, quietly, Tuli Leitu Lasanoa playing more snaps late in the season has been, been awesome. a factor in the... The you defense know, is moving up that. statistically too, a little bit. But like they're winning these games with offense. The final scores. But of they their last still aren't going to play offense they're... in the national championship game. Okay, they ha- the last two games they've given up thirty-one points. Oregon, you know, uh, Michigan has not given up thirty-one points all season. So it's going to take for them if they give up that same <sighs> number of points a larger score than Michigan has allowed all season. Man, I and I think. This is the best offense that Michigan has played all season. I agree. Not you agree. Statistically, this is the best offense that Michigan has played all season. Those teams that scored those points against them was Oregon, who has a better offense than Michigan has. No, well, yes. But Michigan, Texas did it, does not have a better offense. Oregon than has a better offense than Michigan does. Do they not? Yeah. And they run the ball a lot. How did Oregon run in that game? They, again, averaged over six yards per carry. Okay, here's the other thing that we talked about. I mean, yeah, they gave up 34 points, but like, it's still a good Oregon defense. Their leading rusher was Bonix. That's the thing that scares me also, is dropping back into coverage. That's where the Huskies get gashed too. Yes. Jordan James had five carries for 35 yards. Bucky Irving had nine for 20. What do you think Bucky Irving did against every other team? I agree that they had he a good He averaged game against Bucky. way more yards per carry than Blake Quorum did. He also didn't had- have the touchdowns. He also had a great game against the Huskies earlier in the season. 6.3 yards per carry to 4.9. I think you're not factoring in enough this Oregon win. I think we have to admit to ourselves that Oregon is the second best team. I mean, I'm not saying that the Huskies are going to lose by five touchdowns here, but what I'm telling you. You said they have a prayer in the game and a four and a half point game. I don't know what I said, but this conversation that we were having has talked me into the Huskies in this game. Talked me out of them. I, I think that's gonna what's gonna be very important. So one thing the Huskies Dylan did, Johnson is not gonna run for 152 yards. One thing the Huskies did on Monday that I don't think any got very much discussion is they deferred to the second half. Yep. And it worked out. They played from ahead most of the game. Even with the fumble by Jeremy Bernard on the punt return that Every prevented team them would from defer though. They got the ball first against Oregon. They cannot defer. If they win the toss against Michigan, they need the ball. They need to play with the lead in this game. Oh, I don't agree with that at all. You think they should they should take the ball? Yes. Oh, go get Michigan off the field. I love how diametrically opposed we are on this. They literally you should always defer. I don't understand it statistically. There's nothing that makes you more likely to get more possessions just because you can have the ball consecutively at the end of the first half and the second half. It doesn't doesn't I think change. You, you can manage the game more by being able to do that. I suppose so. Your odds of having the ball to end the first half are the same whether you get it to start of the second half or not. But you can play it with the perspective of... It's like knowing what you're going to need in the same way that like it's better to play... Usually on. knowing what you're going to need is not good All because right. you play more conservative. Wow. I, I, if, they, if they win this toss, they are deferring, just so you know. I don't think they are. You think they want the ball and they're going to score? I think they're, yeah, I think they want, do not want Michigan to be in a situation where they are controlling the game. They, they, what they don't want is what happened to the Seahawks against the Steelers on Sunday. Like the template for You're what, talking about one of the worst defenses in the NFL. The Huskies are not one of the worst defenses in college. I agree. Mason Rudolph 
relative to NFL quarterbacks is also not Michigan's offense and J.J. McCarthy relative to college quarterbacks. They're not comparable to the Seahawks. The Seahawks have a worse offense they do not, and the worst defense. They want to put Michigan in a situation where Michigan becomes one-dimensional. And yes. maybe J.J. McCarthy is good enough to do that. They, they have been, that, that is the he thing hasn't been needed to be at. all season. That is the thing that they've been good at this season, though, is forcing those teams to do that. I in, don't think. In, no, actually, I think they've been very poor at that. In games, in in <laughs> they, they, in good weather, <laughs> in good weather games, that's what they've been good at. But they got ahead. They've been very good at getting ahead by a couple of scores. In basically every big game they've played all year, they've gotten ahead by a couple of scores. And the other teams I, have I mean, always fought they, back. They did in the Oregon game. The Oregon, Oregon once, game at home as well. Oregon twice, Texas. There are three games that matter for the Huskies. Perfect weather, every single one of them. I mean, USC was more even for the entire game. But they also got ahead by two scores, didn't they? It's like the very end of the fourth quarter. You've kind of retconned USC into being not as important because of the fact that the Trojans subsequently had their season go off. Oh, I think every game is important. I mean, I look, you can look back at all these moments and like, we're in the national championship. Like that that is the most amazing thing that has happened. They almost blew the shit so many times. Like you can look through There's the schedule. A, you you heard the stat on the broadcast, right? This was ESPN stats and info. I, I can't take wow. credit, credit for this. Uh, that in the history of the AP poll, there had never been as long of a streak of score one score wins or ten ten point win, wins. Yeah, because USC was ten. Yeah, and and Stanford was nine. In the history of the AP poll, no team had ever won as many consecutive games by ten points or fewer, and that was before the Huskies did it to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> they added. There, there, we're like you know. This is one of my favorite metaphors, but we're the cartoon character. The the roadrunner has run way off the cliff and has not looked down yet and realized how far off the cliff. And look, that's fine. Like, Sometimes you can do that because they're need in to do the it national one more championship. Time. Yes, like none of that, none of that shit matters right now. What happened against Arizona State doesn't matter. What happened against Oregon State doesn't matter. What happened against USC but it still doesn't matter. It's much like the Utah men's basketball playing well at Utah and Colorado. It informs what's going to happen in the future. Michael Penix Jr. in neutral settings is what informs what's going to happen in the future. Has he had... What are his stats at? Have you updated the numbers? I haven't, no. Go update the numbers. Update the numbers. You want to do this in real time? I'm trying to... I need to do the blue sky post. So again, this... Oh, you're going to do the blue sky post? (laughs) (laughs) You have to do the blue sky post and then inform ESPN stats and info? (laughs) Yes, of course. Send them the blue sky post. Those are the situations that are scary to me. When the Huskies get up by, I mean, again, they got up by nine points with like a minute 50 left and Texas almost won the game. That is what I'm most scared of, but I don't know if that's Michigan's offense. But what I do know is that kind of Texas's offense, it is definitely Oregon's offense. And those two teams gashed the Huskies in those situations and they almost lost the game because of it. And I think in this one, if they can get up by two scores, I will be very fascinated to see if that's a thing that Michigan can do. And I think what's going to happen in this game and in the future of the Big Ten is a lot of teams are going to be like, oh, fuck, USC scores a lot of points quickly. All of a sudden, their ground and pound offense is going to look very, very different when they have Oregon coming at them. And the final thing that I do not think that we have discussed on this is the exact same as we saw from our our friend Coach Sarkeesian last week before he retired, bitch. I do not think that Jim Harbaugh can be as aggressive as Kalen DeBoer is willing to be. It is so deep in Jim Harbaugh's blood to be conservative. That man is Pete Carroll incarnate. I think Michigan may punt 
or field goal their way to a loss in the national championship game. I think they might be scared to go in. I the thought I had about this game that I have not mentioned at any point is like it it is so appropriate for UW to be the team playing Michigan here. Because setting aside the Jim <laughs> because Harbaugh we're fans of UW went there. <laughs> no. Setting aside the Jim Harbaugh to the Chargers rumors, which are intriguing in their own right. Oh, I think there's I think there's a real shot. One literally one way or the other. It could be a real retire. Uh look, the the Seahawks previously ended Jim Harbaugh's tenure with the 49ers. Like, that wasn't his final game, but they ended his tenure. Oh, yeah. With the 49ers. Thanksgiving night. Richard Sherman marched off the field, turkey leg in hand. Still one of the great Thanksgivings of all time. The greatest. They ended it a couple of times. They ended it with the tip, but then they also ended it literally for good. They put him out of his misery on Thanksgiving night. But also, think back to 2015 and the game that was not played to its completion. The Seahawks face the New England Patriots amidst a cheating scandal over them deflating footballs. So if you're going to have an immense cheating scandal where the team goes to the championship, who should be there but a team from Seattle <laughs> to be the nation's team against those cheaters? I love it. Bring it on. Chances of victory. Nation- also, I just have to, I have to say, I don't want to keep extending this. We're playing the fucking national championship game. Like, I mean, come on. I just, I keep, like, I'm beaming right now you it, are it is as you sit in front of your purple tree with a husky topper with purple and gold lights on the bushes outside one way or another this is shit we're gonna remember for the rest of our lives I, one thing i was coming. thinking I, I, uh, we do need to wrap this up at some point here is like the way that the seahawks run galvanized casual fans in seattle who could some 10 years later be selling their season tickets to, <laughs> yeah, to fans of the fans. 49ers and Steelers. <laughs> <laughs> Someday, Minnesota fans may be buying these tickets. It's actually the good thing about not having West Coast teams to play anymore. Like, I don't think it's <laughs> going to have the same degree of impact, but there was a long period of time where I was cynical about the idea that UW football could ever have the same cultural importance that it did in the 1990s. But walking around on New Year's Day, like, went to brunch at Endeline Joe's, and everyone there, not everyone, but like, there's so many large groups of people in Washington gear at Costco the morning after the game. So many people in UW gear. And just the excitement around the city about this team is palpable in a way that even in 2016 when they made the playoffs, the, the playoffs, close. there was nothing Not like comparable. this. And I do think about, you know, baby fantasy genius experiencing this as an 11-year-old. He cried. He and cried the after they won. This is going to be a formative experience for him, much like the 1991 season was for me. It was not for you. <laughs> oh, that victory over Drew Brees. <laughs> it's almost like you could say, this is... Dog's house. Wow. Chances of victory in the national we, championship. We my game. house is now Dog's house. 30%. 50-50. I think it's a 50-50 shot, and I think UW is going to lead in this game in the fourth quarter. It's too bad you can't put some money down on this game, put your money where your mouth is. I did win $30 on the uh, the Sugar Bowl. How? I bet on UW when I was in Vegas in December. Wait, really? Yeah. Oh, shit. I did the, took the money line. That's awesome. I wanted to bet on them to win the playoff just, you know, on a lark, but I couldn't figure out how to do that on the <laughs> machine, so I settled for the money line against Texas. I think UW is going to be up in this game in the fourth quarter. I think Michael Penix Jr., the numbers that you're going to tell us right before we leave. Oh, I, I do not know for sure which games qualified in the 60 degrees plus, so I'm going to go need to recreate that the, the numbers that you're going to tell us on Blue Sky tomorrow? Yes. 
If you need, if you need an invite, hit might, me up. I got might, extras. Might be worth on retiring from Twitter, but no. I, I what if it's what if it's a, a post on Twitter with a reminder of the Discord? Which, so, by the way, join the Discord if you're not on there. I uh, won't be seeing you on Monday. Three hundred. You so this was coming into the Pac-12 championship. He was averaging three hundred and seventy-five pass Have yards you done per it post, game. Post and Pac-12 championship, but again, I don't know which games counted to this. So I to find an average. I would so, need to know which games counted. But so he, he had two monster games after his already great stats. That's correct. He had probably his best game of the year after that. I mean, in terms of QBR, I'm certain it was, yeah. Uh, the Michigan State game still might have been better. I don't know. But so his two games after that were, he only threw for 319 yards against Oregon, I guess. He was not statistically that amazing of a game, but then 430 against Texas. 430 against the number the, 60. The other thing we haven't mentioned one time, they broke the emergency glass on the emergency Michael Penix design. Oh ones. yeah, no, that was a uh, yep. <laughs> three the three for thirty one. We'll it was see. they were it was something that had not existed. Also tried a couple of trick plays, neither worked. And they're they're gonna do. I'm telling you, they're gonna do some shit to try to win this game. I mean, I think Michigan Kim, will do that element Jim as well. Jim Harbaugh doesn't have it in him. Jim Harbaugh's gonna win this the old school way. He has the fucking Big Ten bravado. This motherfucker coached Stanford. Like they do not have it. In them to try to win the game. The wave of the future is begrudgingly the second best team in the country, Dan Lanning and Oregon, Kalen DeBoer at the University of Washington. They're the new Big Ten. They are the best coaches in the country. And the dinosaurs like Jim Harbaugh and their ground and pound run the ball 60 times. It's done. It's finished forever. You opened up, you opened up the gates, and all of a sudden you've got West Coast football in your little Big Ten, and you have the team's running those trick plays, 29 of 38, 430 yards for a 97.7 QBR in this game, plus the runs. Like, I look, if he did that against the number six defense in the country, it may be, maybe it'll only be 400 against the number <laughs> number one. Are they number one? Yes. The number one defense in the country. We'll By see. Way, but. I can't wait to see it. It was a 97.7 QBR against Texas, nearly eclipsing his 97.6 in his last taste of Big Ten football against Michigan State. So this was the number, his number one game of the year, yeah. happening against the number 16. Get well, the, the fuck out QBR of here. QBR's opponent adjusted. Still, so it's, get the fuck out of here with your any prayer, 30%. I don't know if I said any prayer. Maybe I did. Quinn Ewers running was the scariest thing that happened all game. On that note, <sighs> I can't wait. What's your deal? What do you mean, what's your, my deal? Oh, be chill with Jim Harbaugh. Thanks for listening. Thanks.